Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts and a particular welcome to our many uh, new subscribers, our subscriber numbers. Are we up to three up. now? No, we're, into, we're deep into double digits now. Oh wow, we it's can, like a Lib Dem polling Exactly, search. we can begin to dream <laughs> of topping, in fact we, 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 have, we have topped 20 subscribers. Uh, but no, genuine, uh, very many thank you to everyone who listens. It's lovely to see several hundred listens to each of our episodes, which, for better or worse, encourages us to carry on doing them. <laughs> Tough luck, uh, listeners. Thankfully, the Liberal Democrats have nicely served up a bevy of positive stuff for us to talk I know. About. It's, I was trying to think, because um, the last time I was elected... I should just say to listeners that Stephen has about four empty cups of coffee in yeah. front of him so when he says I'm trying to think he's <laughs> literally true it is powered by caffeine this morning um, the, I think the last time I got elected was about the last time the Lib Dems had an, uh, uh, an unvarnished good result in a local elections and that was in 2004 um, you are older it's than not you cause, it's not cause and effect by the way I'm not saying <laughs> because I got elected la- that night that uh, that's why that happened but because of course that was uh, post Iraq mm. And then uh, we had the 2005 general election with locals, and that was slightly disappointing. Uh, and then, of course, Cameron mm. um, surge took over, yeah, and then, of course, it's coalition. So mm. it's for, for lots of Lib Dem members, this will actually have been probably the first set of local really election good results set of elections, that they yeah. can think of. Mm. And I guess one slight digression that's worth pulling out f- from that is people often forget that, in many ways, the Lib Dem decline set in pre-2010. Certainly if you look at the Liberal Democrat local government base, it sort of grew decade after decade, really, with some ups and downs, got to a peak in about the mid-90s, mid to late-90s, and then it stagnated for a bit under a decade before then starting to decline several years before we went into coalition, which is one of the reasons why I bang on about how we need to rebuild the party in a way that's different from simply mirroring uh, mirroring the past because yeah. we need to learn about more than just coalition in terms of what has worked but also not worked in the past but back to happy news yeah. so um, if you want to give us a, a little bit of a, a recap obviously we're talking a couple of weeks mm. more or less after the local elections but just I don't think Lib Dem listeners at least will be able to get enough of some of the figures no, from those I think, local elections I think I could just say the number 704 <laughs> on loop for three hours and this probably would be our most listened to <laughs> most popular best rated episode so 704, I believe, was the number what number does that refer to, Mark? The number of net Liberal Democrat gains. So largest number of gains the Liberal Democrats have ever made in a round of council elections, larger than the Alliance ever managed. And in fact, I think if you you stretch back, it's just possible there might have been something like a post-Orpington year where the party topped that back before people kept really systematic records. But it's pretty likely that is 704 is the best result for Liberal Democrats, stroke alliance, stroke liberals since before the Second World War. Hurrah. Hurrah for that. Hurrah. Uh, also quite promising was the Lib Dem share of the vote. Uh, the BBC figure, which is the nicest one and therefore obviously the one that we're going to say <laughs> is the most rigorous this time around, had the Lib Dem equivalent national share on 19%. Uh, for people who don't know what equivalent national share means is it's not all of the country was up for election, not even all of England was up for election, and Scotland and Wales obviously had a few council by-elections, but not generally elections. So uh, what, what the BBC does is they take the votes that were cast and then extrapolate from that to what the share of vote would have been if the whole country had been up for election and taking into account the variations of which sort of areas were up and not up. So they put the Lib Dems on 19%, Thrasher and Rawlings, who do the same sort of calculation but with a very different methodology, they put the Lib Dems on 17%. It's always reassuring that two different methodologies come up with roughly the same 
answer. The BBC's 19% was out and out the best Lib Dem uh, result since the collapse at the beginning of the coalition years. Thrasher and Rawlings actually had the Lib Dems on 18% in 2017, but again, 17% yeah. this time, 8%, then definitely back up to much, much better than the long stretch of, of coalition years. Um, I so just in terms of um, expectations, mm. uh, because I'm not, I saw on your um, blog that you'd written about, you know, in your visits to various www.parkpack.org.uk. Uh, thank uh, Excellent. Um, I'm sure people didn't know it otherwise. Um, <laughs> then you've been various parts mm. of the country, and one of the comments you made was that you were being sent to uh, help out in wards which were um, stretches yeah, for the Lib Dems. And that was where you were getting a sense mm. that actually things were looking mm. good. And I remember in the last podcast, I, I was, you know, being slightly doom mongery because mm. we've had lots of predictions mm. of Lib Dem breakthroughs and recovery before, and they've yeah. not quite come to pass. This one did. Mm. So, what do you think was different this time um, from your experiences out on the doorstep that hasn't been happening for the last couple of years? Um, well, I, I guess one one very boring explanation is that this is the one year in the four-year cycle which has by far the largest number of seats up for election. So although this year was a fantastic success, that headline number is slightly magnified by it having come in the year that was the peak year for number of seats mm -hmm. up for election. Now, I did notice somebody commented on something I wrote a few days ago that, in a way, the figure, you know, it, it's, it's slightly unfair to Tim Farron, in a sense, if you look at his local government record, because he had a good year and a not-so-good year local elections when he was leader his good year wasn't a year when as many seats yeah. were up for election on the other hand in Tim's case his bad year was also not a year when so many seats were up for election so, so are these particularly kind of Lib Dem friendly mm. areas or not or is it a bit of a mix well it's, it's a bit of a you've mix you've got the Tory shires yeah. and you've got some northern uh, Labour controlled mm. cities all kind of yeah. part of the mix here I mean overall the seats the wards up for election were slightly more leave than average mm -hmm. Uh, about 54% leave in the referendum rather than 52% across the nation. So in that sense, I wouldn't say it was particularly you know, a massively Lib Dem favourable area. What it was, though, was that it was a lot of seats where um, sort of Tory seats in southern England um, or sort of more rural, more prosperous bits of northern England, a lot of Tories, such Tory seats up for election, where the Lib Dems still had a little bit of a presence mm -hmm. And one of the things that some of the analysts really highlighted was how where it was the Lib Dems were still a clear second. Yeah. Lib Dems did fantastically well. There were also some great breakthroughs mm -hmm. uh, elsewhere, but it was certainly having had just enough of a local party survive. So uh, was it, uh, I'm, I guess, looking at reasons for um, Lib Dems doing well this year compared to the last couple of years post-Brexit, is it partly a Brexit backlash against the Conservatives? Or is it um, the Lib Dems losing the toxicity of association with the coalition, if that ever particularly existed? We talked before about the fact that maybe the Lib Dems were invisible. Spoiler, readers, it didn't. Um, That's a slight exaggeration. But for any new listeners, as we have many yes, new listeners, go on. Um, um, the, the, the key figure to remember here is that YouGov did some polling, which is matched by other research, but this one YouGov poll captures it really nicely, where they asked people a couple of years after coalition, firstly, do you think the Lib Dems are right or wrong to go into coalition? And secondly, if you think they were wrong to go into coalition, have you forgiven them? So the people who thought the Lib Dems were wrong to go into coalition and hadn't forgiven them was around one in four of the electorate. Mm -hmm. So in amongst that will definitely be some former Lib Dems and all of that. And probably in some of the seats such as Cambridge, Oxford East, yeah, etc. But overall, it's only one in four. Yeah. And obviously a good chunk of those are, for example, uh, sort of hardcore left-wingers who would absolutely hate the Lib Dems and never, yeah. maybe once would have voted Lib Dem post-Iraq war, but were not really ever part of the a sustainable Lib Dem coalition. So definitely there was 
big damage to the party in the coalition years. But this idea that the brand was massively tarnished, I think, is hugely over. And it was done. more the invisibility of the exactly. Dems and the feeling that they yeah. hadn't achieved anything yeah. by going into coalition. And so we, we're all at that yeah. reason. So back to my question. Yeah. Before I will return to that, though, when we is, come to Is it how it far is <laughs> it um, a kind of benefiting from mm. Brexit backlash among Remain-inclined mm. voters, uh, or is it the Lib Dems simply becoming um, party of protest? I, I hate that yeah. phrase because, actually, I think all parties are parties of protest. People vote for the Labour yeah. Party because they don't like the Conservatives, mm. they vote Conservatives because they don't like Labour. All parties are, to an extent, a reaction against um, whoever's in power. But the Lib Dems are often mm. labelled a party mm. protest conveniently. Um, so to what extent is it Brexit? To what extent is it just a reversion to the mean of benefiting from being the party, the leading party in opposition in some parts of the country? Um, it's probably a bit of all of those factors. I think or if you look at uh, the, the correlation between Lib Dem share of the vote and how Leave or Remain in area was, there is a bit of a pattern that the more Remain in area is, the better the Lib Dems did. Mm-hmm. That pattern um, is strongest if you look at the vote share changes over the last four years. There's definitely been a shift in the Lib Dems towards doing better in Remain areas. That shift has probably taken place a little bit more uh, over the earlier part of that four-year period rather mm-hmm. than the last six months. So it's the stalemate in and Parliament is probably, probably not the Probably there's of that. some degree of correlation between Leave voting areas of the country not having been particular strengths of Lib Dem support in the past as well. Yeah, so, so there is that organisational factor, and in particular, if you look at where people have joined the party, the people have joined the party in the last few years predominantly in Remain areas, and the organisational capability that comes with that then magnifies yeah. that, that, that the, the effect of it being a role more Remain and therefore more favourable to the area. Because I was just area. looking at some of the data, and uh, so in areas that voted 55 to 60% leave, um, the swing to the Lib Dems was about 3 or 4%, mm. which was fractionally below more Remain voting mm. areas, but not that much different. It was a pretty much across the board until you get to 60% plus yeah. Leave voting areas, which <coughs> I'm guessing are not natural Lib Dem areas mm. in the main. Yeah, so I, I think that, that there's both a sort of an organisational capacity issue there and where have we got members, where have we recruited new members. There is also a bit of underlying views amongst voters. Uh, the public is beginning to finally notice the Liberal mm. Democrats are anti-Brexit, um, yeah. which, I, I mean, I often joke that people say being a single-issue party is a bad thing. Actually, no, when you're a small party, being a single-issue yeah. party is progress, that people actually associate something with you. As, as Change UK are helpfully exactly. proving for us. <laughs> I think the other factor um, that we, we simply don't know is even in Leave voting areas, there are a lot of Remain voters. Yeah. When you put yeah. it in the context of the sort of level of turnout, you, we tr- typically get at local elections. Yeah. Um, and actually, I did a calculation uh, for Peterborough, actually with a Peter- forthcoming Peterborough parliamentary by-election in mind, where, and this is just a very sort of Peter Snow type for a little bit of fun calculation, but if you look at how many people voted Remain in Peterborough at the referendum, overall the constituency voted Leave, but you look at how many Remain voters there are, you then look at what sort of turnout you typically get in a parliamentary by-election and how mm-hmm. many votes you need to finish a strong second or even better in a parliamentary by-election. There are more than enough yeah. Remain voters for it to be possible to do exceptionally well. Well, and this is the, ar- a- the argument often made by Labour mm. Remainers, isn't it? That mm. there's this um, view that's out there, particularly, I guess, on the Corbynite yeah. Lexit Mm. Um, left that Labour has to face both ways because it can't afford to lose its leave voting mm. areas, particularly uh, in the north. Um, but of course, that does ignore the fact that even in the most leave voting areas, you probably had a third of voters mm. at least um, voting Remain, yeah. and many of those will have voted Labour mm. at those elections. And so there's a real risk for them that by facing both ways, they're pleasing no 
um, neither side. Mm. And uh, it's a risk that the Lib Dems have deliberately yep. avoided by picking a side. Mm. I guess in the same way that uh, on Iraq there was a risk, mm. um, but the Lib Dems picked a side in the end. Mm. And you're seeing that sense of perhaps of benefit of whether people like the view or not, mm. at least respecting that uh, the party has a firm view and mm. they know where they stand, which has often been the argument against the Dems in the past that you're never quite sure what they stand for. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering that although the Liberal Democrats have very long been a pro-European party, it is a little bit unusual uh, for us to be so out-and-out European without wanting to caveat it in <laughs> some way. That's, oh, what about Norfolk? And what about Devon? Yeah. And what about Cumbria? And what about... The, and this is partly why it's a point you've often picked up on, you know, when we talked about this in the past, even when, in the you know, when we've been quite pro-European in the past, there's often been a, but say we'll have a referendum about it, mm -hmm. add-on, which pro-Europeans have been able to be happy with to say, well, look, we're campaigning for something pro-European, yeah. but those in more Eurosceptic parts of the country have been able to hang on, but look, it's okay, we're not going to yeah, force it Don't worry, it on we're you. not that European. We'll give you a vote. Uh, and what I think is striking is how little... Uh, sort of a backlash is maybe, would be maybe putting it too strongly, but how little pushback there is mm. in the party now compared to similar debates in the past, where it is, there is much more willingness to be out and out pure, pure yeah. European. Well, it's part but, of the kind of polarisation, I guess, yeah. of political debate yeah. more generally in the country, that people are now yeah. having to pick one of yeah. two sides which aren't actually related to Conservative or Labour, left or right. Exactly, yeah. uh, it's much more complex yeah. than that now. I mean, there is a little bit of pushback. I mean, we talked before about Norman Lamb's comments about mm -hmm. how uneasy yep. he was about the party striding pro-Europeanism. The party launched its uh, European election campaign shortly before local election polling day. And again, there was a little mm -hmm. bit, there was some complaints from some quarters about how dare the party be talking about Europe ahead of, uh, <laughs> ahead of uh, a local election polling day. And, and then I think that reflects how the other element, going back to sort of what caused the tremendous results, the other element in that was particularly in parts of Northern England, really back, you know, poorly run uh, Labour councils yeah. with Labour councillors who are massively out of touch with their wards. Sunderland being the kind of yeah, epitome. And, of yeah, the... and, and this... I mean, people sometimes use the phrase protest voting, but I think there's something a bit more, uh, a bit more glorified, a bit more admirable about if you, you know, you have a ward that's been neglected by the council, that's been ne neglected by its councillors, and you then have a political party that mm -hmm. comes along, thankfully in this case the Liberal Democrats, um, that starts really communicating with voters, taking up issues on the behalf of voters, etc. Now it's true that. Maybe if it were a group of three super keen UKIP activists, the party would, the, mm -hmm. the board would have voted UKIP rather than Lib Dem. So there is a well, and we saw a big upsurge in independents mm. getting elected but precisely for exactly. that reason. But it is more than just protest. I yeah. think I think I think it's quite easy for political <clears throat> pundits in London to be a little bit snobbish about voters responding very powerfully to a long-running feeling of neglect by voting for somebody credible who will kick out the people currently in power. Yeah. That's that's. That's much more than protest. That's, uh, you know, in part it's protest, in part it's maybe even a plea for help, but in part it's also recognition that, hey, there are some people who are willing yeah. to put the effort in to make our in lives part, better. In part it's democracy. Exactly. Um, just in terms of, uh, you talked about tremendous achievements, mm. and we've done that. I feel like I ought to be at least some voice of caution um, and rain on the parade just a little bit. So, I mean, just three things, I guess, that were less positive. One you've already mentioned, which is that the vote share, whilst up on previous mm. years, 
is still well down yeah. on where the Lib Dems yeah. were. I mean, take 2006 or seven mm-hmm. when the Lib Dems at the time were said to be in turmoil. Charles yeah. Kennedy had uh, just been forced to quit uh, and Cameron was mm-hmm. on the surge, Lib Dems in disarray, and still the party yeah. got 26, 27%. At that time, yeah, I, I guess to put, it, this time. to put the sh- just uh, the, oh, sorry, sorry. And, uh, you've also got the number of seats contested, yeah. which is something yeah. I know you bang on about that every uh, Lib Dem area should be putting up a full slate of candidates wherever possible to give people the chance to vote Lib Dem, yeah. uh, and that happened in 53 percent yeah. of wards this time compared with two thirds uh, again going back 10 uh, or 12 years. Um, so you've got these, uh, you know, overall a great picture on the mm-hmm. night. But nonetheless, it's not full recovery even back to where we were 10 years ago. Mm. And of course, you know, 800 seats um, uh, under Vince Cable, that's great. But of course, 2,500 seats lost under Nick Clegg. Um, So it's a a kind of inch-by-inch recovery. It's not a complete turnaround. Yeah, I mean, I I guess depending on exactly what sort of measure you use, you could sort of say we've maybe got done about a third of the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess on vote share you could maybe argue well, we've sort of gone from around 10 to 17, 18 if we were to do another 8 points that would be back so maybe it's halfway somewhere between we've got between a third and a halfway of getting back to where we were before and indeed we would obviously hope to be, do even better than we were before so there is a long long road still ahead of us yeah. that said to have got between a third and a halfway back uh, within, a, you know, within a couple of years uh, is, is pretty good pretty good going in many ways it's worth remembering that you know, there wasn't an immediate massive bounce back for the party once we were out of coalition there was a huge surge sure. in party membership but on all the other metrics it didn't suddenly you know bounce back really really quickly um so in that sense i think the speed of progress is pretty good the fact there is still so far to go perhaps says something rather more about not just how badly coalition hit us but how decline the city set in pre-coalition mm-hmm. as well and therefore just what a big challenge um there still is yeah. but third halfway there it's more than one step forward maybe two or three steps forward and what it does i guess is set up the party for the european elections Mm. um which i I remember we briefly mentioned it in one of our first podcasts this idea of european Mm. elections and wouldn't it be fantastic if there were some because wouldn't that um mean the i think i think i think the way to describe that Stephen, is long-term listeners will have heard it predicted here first Uh, indeed yeah um but we, I, at the time, it seemed almost a joke, yeah. the idea that there would be European yeah. elections, and yet here we are. Uh, Actually, just as I digression, those of you who remember how it was basically impossible to hear Stephen in our early pilot episodes, it, it makes... Many me, listeners we, preferred it, I'm sure. Yeah, we, we can claim, basically, that you predicted anything, and, <laughs> and, 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 and simply say to him, go and listen to the podcast. Well, to be, fair, never I, know to be fair, I predicted 703 net games. Yes, you were so close. Um, you were not so 704, close. so you know, my powers of prediction weren't perfect. But we have these European elections yeah. taking place... Um, uh, 23rd of May mm. and what the local elections have done of course is give the party a, a, a huge fillip, um, mm. a springboard into them um, and I guess on one level what it's done is establish <coughs> the Lib Dems together with the Greens to be fair as the two main repositories of unabashedly remain mm. um, parties uh, and have eclipsed Change UK the independent group mm. um, the Remain Alliance whatever they are this week um, their claim that you know the Lib Dems just can't do it, and therefore we uh, are the people who uh, can plausibly uh, become that safe repository of Remain voters. That's that's mm. that's gone away now with those local elections, hasn't it? Question. Yeah, I think the there, there's a sort of a, a couple of, or well, maybe three sort of big mistakes. It looks like Change UK has made. One is to think the Lib Dem brand is irredeemably tarnished, so to misinterpret. I mean, it's a very common 
thing that people say, oh, Lib Dem, you know, brand completely trashed by coalition. Um, even the uh, Rory and Steve from ne- uh, Not Enough Champagne, a, my favourite left-leaning political podcast, <laughs> uh, you know, it, and they, they often say really good, you know, really insightful things that certainly make me pause for thought, but I think this is something they quite often get wrong as well, is, is it's, it wasn't really that the brand was tarnished, it was people felt the party was irrelevant. That was, and mm-hmm. I think Change UK sort of misinterpreted that as well. I think the second sort of mistake that Change UK have made is to underestimate the degree to which you, getting the basics of political organisation right is actually really quite hard if you're coming from scratch. And maybe they underestimated that or maybe they overestimated their own knowledge in that area, yeah. but they do seem to have struggled a lot with some of the basics. And um, one way of thinking about it is, is essentially they lack a, a Bill Rogers. Bill Rogers, mm-hmm. one of the members of the SDP gang of the four. The fourth man. Yeah, and he, the, the owner of the best political autobiography title ever <laughs> in history, ever, 100% guaranteed. Uh, he, he called his autobiography fourth among equals, yeah. which I thought was a, a lovely piece of self-deprecation, but reflected the fact he was normally thought of as the least well-known, the least yeah. important of the gang of four. What he did, though, bring, and I think... Change UK really highlighted how it's easy to underestimate this is some of that organisational now. Well, the thing, the thing that struck me um, about uh, the independent group when it launched, uh, other than wishing them well at the time, as I as I did on this yeah. podcast, um, was they didn't attract Lib Dem peers, mm. uh, sorry, Labour peers, mm. um, or indeed Conservative peers, or indeed Lib Dem peers, um, or indeed Lib Dem. So they didn't actually get any. Uh, members of the House of Lords, mm. as far as I'm aware, not publicly, mm. not that I noticed um, coming across, they didn't get any councillor, or very mm. many, there were a handful of um, yeah. councillors who um, arbitrarily there chose a couple to of, A couple of former Labour councillors in no Brighton, kind, but very but few was, beyond that. Yeah. So there wasn't that, uh, and what that pointed to was there wasn't really a, a kind of network mm. building up, and there did seem to be um, this sense that the they could win through the air war, mm. uh, which has perhaps been disproven by experience, yeah. which when you are you know, the fifth largest yeah. party in Parliament. I mean, you know, well done and everything, but that does not guarantee you mm. um, the first slot on the news at 10 every night. Yeah, and, and I think that was their third mistake, is is they they don't seem to have got enough different ways of trying to pull themselves into media and public attention. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they do have, and, you know, they may yet pull this off again with some further defections, you know, big... Big political defections do really attract news and attention. Tony Blair, like but I said then, last time, they needed to land yeah, Tony Blair. Uh, but uh, or maybe not. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> moving on from that. Um, but they don't seem to really have had a plan B. You know, okay, if we've got one yeah. wave of defections, what then do we do to keep the momentum going if we don't pick up more? Yeah. I mean, for the Lib Dems, in a way, the local elections were Plan B. Was if we're not getting as much national attention as we want, you can use that grassroots campaigning infrastructure to hang on and then to carry on battering away, and whether it was the Richmond Park parliamentary by-election a couple of years back or the local elections this year, sometimes also achieve something mm. that gets begins to get you back into the national uh, picture. Or it can be through being really sort of scrappy and, and aggressive at chasing media coverage. Um, Nigel Farage is quite a good example of that. So there are lots of different ways you can have... Uh, or indeed you can attempt the, or indeed to the, get um, public attention and momentum. What Change UK seem to have had is sort of nothing really beyond that initial hit. 
Whereas the Lib Dems, mm. the Lib Dem slogan for the European elections, um, you were talking about aggressively grabbing the media limelight. Let's hope we're not going to so, get censored uh, by Apple, so, iTunes. So, uh, the, uh, so the Lib Dems uh, have often actually had two slogans um, for an election campaign, normally because they couldn't decide at the top of the party which one to go with, and so you end up with fair, green and prosperous for a new Britain renewal now kind of uh, melange. Yes, Labour can't win here. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and where we work, we win. Um, kind of melange of, uh, of disparate phrases strung together in the hope that people will like the sound of one yeah. of the words in them. Um, this time we do have uh, two slogans. Um, one is Stop Brexit, um, which is the uh, pre-watershed um, version, yeah. and then there is the post-watershed um, bollocks to Brexit, um, which we will shorten to B2B. Um, <laughs> for, um, so, uh, I mean, I, I came out as mildly against it yeah. in the sense that I don't like the general kind of uh, coarsening of discourse, it sounds a bit pompous, doesn't it? But you know, I just don't like that sense of um, it's the whole kind of language of betrayal and yeah. traitor and everything that's going on at the moment in politics. And I'd rather the Lib Dems were standing above that when they go low, we yeah. go high kind of stuff. On the other hand, it's clearly been very, very effective yeah. and um, has grabbed the media limelight in a way that uh, Change UK hasn't and has stolen the march on them and has led to this surge, it seems, in the opinion polls showing support for the Lib Dems. So um, definitely effective whether or not I like it. Yeah, and, and I mean, as you know, Stephen, when the microphone's off, I mean, bollocks to Brexit, it's quite mild by the language that you normally <laughs> catch me using. Um, so likewise... Mark not, Potty Mouth Pack, yeah, exactly. they call him. <laughs> uh, um, it's not, not the language I would naturally and instinctively reach for to use myself, but what you do need with political slogans is language that has a chance of sort of cutting through and uh, I, I was slightly amused to hear from a couple of uh, fellow activists at the weekend about how they had been out campaigning on Saturday and people walking past had been shouting bollocks at them and, and, and I did think that's, that's quite a nice change. A few years ago actually we probably had the same experience as living activists. With that I thought you said it wasn't toxic to be, It used to be a bad it wasn't thing. Toxic. The passing socialist shouting okay. that out. Um, but I think that does nicely illustrate how... Well, I guess it illustrates two things. One is the power of slogans that really catch attention and cut through. You know, take back control, build the wall, lock her up, bollocks to Brexit. Mm -hmm. All very different Drain in some small. ways. But there is also a certain direct clarity about them. Um, I, I guess the other thing that illustrates is just how varied voters are. And therefore, what you know, a word that for some people is horrific and for many other people is just completely anodyne. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also then a whole group of people, I guess, sort of in the middle of sort of, yeah, it's okay to use occasionally, but please don't use it when my children might hear. You know, there's a, quite a wide range. There is, there is Ofcom polling data, in fact, on the proportion of people who regard um, ah, the B word as Do offensive. throw in some data So I think here. it's something like 32% yeah. um, regard it as a strong swear word. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're pitching for the 68%. So, I, so yeah, yeah, I think we, we can dream. We can dream. Of, I don't yeah, know whether any canvas data uh, sheets in the future will have to mark up, you know, likely propensity to be offended by swear words yeah. that literature can I do wonder, do, do you remember what the sort of demographic breakdown was of whether people found that offensive? I'm guessing it would be older voters, but I, I yeah, don't know. And that, that would be my that, guess as well. Um, so and, older voters in the Tory shires yeah. perhaps get the stop Brexit yeah. leaflet. Um, but, but I wonder also whether uh, older voters are likely to... I mean, overall, are more likely to be leave. So that whether there's mm -hmm. an extent to which the people most offended by this are people whom the slogan is not designed to appeal to. Um, I, I guess the other question with sort of what people find offensive or not is there are two different ways that you can react 
to, to finding something offensive. One is to sort of regret slightly the choice of words, but still enjoy the message. Mm-hmm. And the other is to just reject it out and out. Yeah. And, and my impression is, at least amongst Lib Dem sort of leaning people who don't like the word, that, that it, it does fall into the former category, that not liking the word doesn't result in them rejecting the whole slogan and think this is just awful yeah. what the Lib Dems are doing. What it seems to do instead is result in them thinking, look, you've gone a bit too far, I sort of understand why, although I think you're wrong to have done so, which still leaves them very open to voting for us, and ironically also has resulted yeah. in probably paying more attention to us than they would have been in the first I mean, place. I think the, I mean, the argument that um, has most validity, and I, you know, I've read uh, the arguments about why uh, the Lib Dems are being entirely right because it gets the cut through with mm. the media and it does capture that sense of frustration, um, which is probably an understatement, yeah. that many um, Remain voters who would be uh, Lib Dem inclined have, and you know, it, just, it, it, it really kind of gets to their guts. So I totally understand that um, perspective. Um, Sunder Cutweller from British Future, mm. um, who is you know, one of the kind of voices of moderation um, from a progressive you know, form of Fabian Society uh, General Secretary, you know, someone who comes from a leftish tradition. Mm. Um, his uh, point on it, which I think is worth bearing in mind, is how do Remain um, parties try and get um, majority support? Mm. How do they build that coalition yeah. of voters? How do they appeal to the people mm. who did vote Leave? Um, because unless you do get some of them over, then you can't possibly win in the future. And also that if you're overturning the democratic mandate of that uh, 2016 referendum, then you don't want to do it narrowly. You, mm. you know, what, if there is a second referendum, what you don't want to end up with is a 51-49. Yeah. I, well, either way, but you know, what you want to try and get to is a 60-40 at least. Mm. And that this kind of language is polarising. It's great for building that core vote for the Lib Dems. I mean, you know, well done and all mm. that. But in terms of the strategic, longer-term vision of how you can actually reach out to voters and appeal and build that uh, that that uh, real majority for mm. remaining, it actually is it, it it works against that. Yeah, and I, I was actually giving a a talk to a group of Lib Dems in Southwest London last night, and this very point came up, and and I think the way I I phrased it then was was simply to say this is a good slogan for the European elections. It's an awful slogan for a referendum. Uh, and I think if you simply try to completely change direction between the two, that would definitely be problematic. But it is possible to be consistent whilst using quite different language and mm-hmm. arguments, and consistent in the sense of being really passionate about the idea that Brexit would be massively damaging for the country, massively damaging for our public services, and the people who would suffer most are those who are poorest and most vulnerable. They're the people mm-hmm. who would suffer most are not people like Nigel Farage, who for all his his desire to paint himself as a principled opponent of the European Union, quite happily takes his salary from the European Parliament and doesn't turn up. A really principled Are you talking Euro about skeptic the, would this have, uh, gentleman amateur who exactly. has stumbled across yeah. elections for the yeah. first time in his 24-year-long yeah. political exactly. career? A, a, a genuinely principled Eurosceptic would simply say, no, I'm not going to take my salary from the European Parliament. But no, he, he quite happily snuffles up all the cash that he can. Um, so it is quite possible to be consistent in terms of being principled and forceful about thinking that Brexit is awful, whilst using different slogan and also, crucially, in a way, sort of targeting slightly different voters. Because yeah. part of winning a referendum will be about definitely mobilising and energising Remain campaigners, but also about 
then having to win yeah. over some swing voters in a way that the European elections is much more about the former and less about the latter. So what do you think will happen? What's your prediction? Nail your colours to the mast of well, um, vote share. I, mean, I don't know how it converts I into just, seats. No one really knows, do uh, they? The, the, uh, where, where does one start? I, <laughs> my, Go on, with a number. Favorite, with a number. My favorite, I got it right with My favourite baffling figure is one of the most recent polls for the European elections, but the Liberal Democrats on 15%. And there are three amazing things about this. One is 15% is bloody good, given where the Libyans <laughs> have been, and in particular given we always in the past have done worse in European elections, these yeah. general elections. So 15%, wow, amazing. Second, that 15% is high enough to put us five points ahead of the Conservatives on mm-hmm. that poll. That's, I mean, to be five points ahead of the Tories, but to be five <laughs> points ahead of the Tories when you're only on 15%, that's going some. Yeah. And also, only 1% behind Labour. Well, we're finding out what yeah. the Conservative core vote is. <clears throat> Indeed. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's known as the Brexit vote. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the current figures are, are all over the place. Yeah. And they're completely wild. I, I do wonder if people in Labour and the Tories are not quite faced up to just how horrific those figures are for two reasons. One is, I think we saw this certainly a bit with Lib Dems and up to 2015, it's sort of only when you really see the ranks of defeated candidates that sort of opinion poll numbers quite convert into something with real emotional power mm-hmm. quite often. Uh, but secondly, well, it's like quite Like when normal. the Lib Dems were reduced to one seat last time from 11. So you just yeah. take Catherine Bearder as the yeah, low exactly. And then likewise Lib-Dem in the MP. general election, you know, the, the huge... You know, the, the, there was a sense of, of, of... It only really hits you. Yeah. It only really becomes real. Vince Cable, yeah. David Laws exactly. and yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I do wonder to what extent Labour and Tories are, are in for, despite a well predicted shock but mm-hmm. quite a big shock when the results actually come through. The other is this question about why people are abandoning Labour and the Tories because in a way a, a government being unpopular midterm mm-hmm. that's not unusual and then government being so unpopular it's down to 10% in parts of the European election that's very unusual mm-hmm. but it also seems to me at least that a large part of this is to do with people not just being fed up with their usual party because they think their usual party is a bit incompetent, but viewing their usual party as no longer having the values that they do. And that potentially is much more damaging in the long run because being a bit incompetent, well, you know, the economy taking a bit of a turn for the better, a change of leader, whatever, there are lots of ways of dealing with that. If you feel that your values and that party's values are out of kilter, that's a much bigger, much... It is. And isn't the worrying thing that we then... You know, the European elections happen, and then at some point, probably before 2022, mm. there will be a general election. Yep. Uh, and people are then going to find themselves boxed back in by the electoral system, which means that in most parts of the country, if you don't like the government, you're faced with the choice of voting Labour. So you find yourselves forced back into that two party contest even though all the elections in between show that the appetite for a two-party contest isn't there. Yeah, well, and that's obviously the thing about first past the post, though, is first past the post is strong but brittle. So it, it, mm-hmm. it, it acts as this really powerful funnel to force people into thinking in a two-party mentality. So Tory Labour across England, obviously, slightly different now in Scotland, Scotland but it yeah. is essentially a you know, SNP or a unionist sort of two-party system in a way that we still have in Scotland. You know, and, and likewise, you know, not a sort of a complete multi-party free-for-all in Wales either. So First Past the Post does act as this really powerful funnel to you know, force politics into sort of a, it's either this lot or that lot. Yeah. But when it breaks, 
Yeah, well, as when, the Canadian Conservatives yeah, found back just, in the 90s. You get, can get completely wild results. Yeah. And you, you look at some of, you know, some of the polling that has both Labour and the Tories on well under 30%. I mean, it, it's what you say is, has always been true, but you still think there's just a possibility we might now be in that, oh, and finally, yeah. the system no longer copes. But not, not no longer copes in a way that a party gets a few million votes and hardly any MPs, Lib Dems, UKIP, etc. experience in the past, but in a way that is just so completely chaotic that actually the voting system changes. Yeah. Well, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> and we will be discussing in detail the many different ways by which STV counts can be conducted and whether the Irish method is the appropriate method for use, doing STV De counts. Haunt, don't go away, voters, yes. <laughs> Obviously, listeners, Stephen knows that De Haunt is not a form of STV. But thank you very much, On everyone. That bombshell. <laughs> thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, do subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy uh, what you've heard so you will get future episodes about roughly fortnightly seems to be that yeah. the rhythm we fall into you'll get future episodes automatically appear in your favourite podcast app and if you are on social media you can find uh, the podcast on Twitter at Bar Chart Podcast and you can find us on Facebook if you search for Nevermind Bar Chart so do lo- like us on Facebook follow us on Twitter and as ever do use those channels to send us your feedback it's always much appreciated. So thank you very much for listening.